0: Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events in historical perspective. I'm your host, Brenna Miller.
1: And I'm your other host, Jessica Venus Nelson. In the last few years, serious discussions about man-made climate change and its present impacts have dominated the headlines. Much of this discussion has centered around issues that directly impact human life, such as extreme weather events, the consequences of pollution for human health, and changes in the practice of agriculture. But an increasingly urgent issue has also been the impacts of climate change on animal and plant life and diversity.
0: In recent years, there have been increasing warnings about the threat of a sixth extinction, in which man-made climate change could wipe out a significant portion of plant and animal species on Earth. Estimates suggest that by the end of the century, we may lose as much as 25 to 50 percent of all species on Earth. How likely is such an event, how far has it gone already, and what would be its consequences? Today, we've invited two guests to discuss the past, present, and future of diversity on Earth, and what we can learn from past extinctions, and if there's anything that can be done to address extinction in the future.
1: Via phone, we have Elizabeth Colbert, a journalist and author of Field Notes from a Catastrophe in 2006, and the 2015 Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History. Hi. And in the studio
0: with us, we have Sam White, an associate professor at The Ohio State University, specializing in environmental history, and recent author of A Cold Welcome, The Little Ice Age and Europe's Encounter with North America. Hello. Thank you to both of you for joining us today. So our first question is, how exactly do historians and scientists define the sixth extinction? And why is it referred to specifically as the sixth? And Elizabeth, if you want to go ahead and start with that question?
2: Well, anything that's a sixth obviously implies five earlier events, and that is exactly why we are discussing the sixth extinction, because there have been five what are called major mass extinctions in the history of multicellular life, so over the last half billion years or so. And the most famous of these extinction events... Is the event that did in the dinosaurs, which was probably caused by an asteroid impact. And in each one of these events, what, what defines these events is just their periods of time, relatively short periods of time on a geological scale, when the diversity of life on Earth for some reason plummeted. And we just see that in the fossil record. And so uh, we don't have a fossil record of today, so it gets a lot more complicated when we look at present-day extinction rates, but the idea is basically that we have very elevated extinction rates. It's so elevated uh, that they're on the same scale uh, that we would have expected to see during
0: previous mass extinction events. Sam, did you have anything to add?
3: There's not a cut-and-dry definition for what constitutes a mass extinction. Uh, the five that we usually identify as the, the five big ones are simply the you know peaks of what were probably smaller extinction events as well. Uh, And in comparing our present-day situation to those, it is difficult because it is hard to find an exact rate of extinctions and to compare the count of extinctions we have to the way we count extinctions or loss of biodiversity in the geological record. However, it is clear that the rate of animals and plants going extinct now is much higher than it usually has been over geological time.
1: So even though it's hard to compare to earlier ones, what makes the sixth extinction different from past extinctions? And how is the sixth extinction happening exactly by habitat destruction, pollution?
3: So I I think what, of course, makes it interesting to us is that it's what we're presently living through uh, and that we appear to be the principal driver of this accelerated rate of extinction and loss of biodiversity. Uh, And it obviously has many causes. Uh, And what may be most worrying is that it's not any one of those that we can separate, but really the combination of all of them uh, that catalyze each other. Uh, So to take two major drivers of the extinction, we have, for instance, loss of habitat and climate change. Well, either one of those is probably going to drive a certain amount of biodiversity loss. But with the two together probably drive more than either would independently because as we lose habitat to uh, for instance uh, deforestation, the conversion of uh, natural grasslands to pasture, uh, or the expansion of areas such as uh, cities and suburbs we make it more difficult for species to adapt by migration. So even if they were able in other circumstances to persist through global warming by migration, uh, we've now potentially blocked those routes.
1: So in contrast to something like a possible asteroid driving the extinction of the dinosaurs, we're looking at not one big event, but a lot of smaller ones contributing to it. Well, I think
2: even if people look at, at the asteroid impact, you know, and we'll never know what happened in the aftermath of that impact, but there were a lot of potential drivers there too. You know, most things were not necessarily killed by the impact per se and they weren't even even necessarily killed by the immediate after effects of the impact which may have included you know basically setting much of the world on fire um but they there were potentially long longer term impacts you know blocking the sun for quite a long time with all this dust in the atmosphere and things like that so so there were potentially you know even multiple drivers uh, during that extinction event which was very very catastrophic event. But but even so, there were probably a lot of different drivers.
0: So both of you take a really long view of history on a geological timeline. So why is it important to look at present climate change in this longer view? And how is it useful for understanding the sixth extinction?
2: So uh, one, one thing I just want to say is that, it, you know, we have to look at what What does this look like in the very long context of the history of life? And the very you know disturbing thing is when we do that when we look at okay, how's the atmosphere changing, how's the climate changing? how are the is the chemistry of the oceans changing? then we we find that they're they're changing very dramatically, even you know against this backdrop of the long history of life, and it's very hard to find analogs going back through you know tens of millions of years to what's going on right now. so, you often find in the scientific literature the, the phrase no-analog. We're going into a no-analog future. And that, if you're a, a creature, you know, another creature, not a human creature, that looks very, very, very scary to you.
3: So uh, I guess we should back up and and talk Mm -hmm. a little about this idea of the Anthropocene. So this is really two things we should keep in mind. Uh, One is that there is a formal proposal to rename the the current uh, geological epoch that we live in, the Anthropocene, to say that we've essentially entered a new epoch. Uh, And there could be any number of possible starting dates for that. Uh, from what I understand from talking people involved, the most likely would probably be actually around 1950, would probably be with, what's sometimes known in, among environmental historians as the Great Acceleration, as uh, mass consumerism and uh, rapid population growth really accelerated our environmental footprint. However, in thinking about the Anthropocene, it's also been a way for environmental historians and, and other people in history and in Earth history to think about the human impact on the environment over longer time scales, because others have proposed other other possible start dates. Uh, so this does help us see a longer history here to the the possible sixth mass extinction uh, that we could take back to say human you know, colonization of the Earth and the extinctions that it brought about in the late Pleistocene through the impacts of uh, you know converting land to agriculture after the Neolithic Revolution and through you know e- impacts from the modern periods or industrialization. And, uh, And I think that helps us see how many dimensions there might be to this concept of the Anthropocene, Uh, that while climate change is often first and foremost on our minds, it is just one dimension uh, of our much larger, much more diverse environmental impact that that we've been having Um, and that has uh, been with us for quite some time, although certainly accelerating over the last 50 years or so.
1: So when exactly then did the threat of the sixth extinction really take off? And have we already witnessed any consequences of losing diversity in nature?
2: Well, I, I think that the same way that, that, as Sam alluded to, there are multiple proposed start dates for the Anthropocene. There are also different time frames in which you could look at the sixth extinction. There was a, There's a big wave, or, or waves, I should really say. Um, as humans moved around, the planet. These are sometimes referred to as the Pleistocene, you know, megafauna extinction. So as pe- people arrived in different parts of, of the world, um, they encountered often these very big animals uh, that were very slow to reproduce, and those animals are not, you know, there anymore. You know, in, in North America, there are lots of them. There were mammoths, or mastodons. We don't have those anymore. And once again, you know, there's debate over why that's the case. I am convinced, and I think many, many um, people who have studied this issue are convinced that the that humans drove those extinctions. If you look at the timing of them, when humans arrived in Australia, we get a wave of extinctions. When humans arrived in North America, we get a wave of extinctions. When humans arrived in Madagascar, we get a wave of extinctions. And that seems like too much to just be coincidence. So, it's possible that quite possible that this. You know, extinction event, which many millions of years from now will look very, 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 very rapid. We won't even be able to tell, you know, exactly when it started. Um, that that it really started, you know, ten tens of thousands of years ago.
1: Are there any other animals who have done something like that? at A predatory species or something that have, <laughs> or on the same level? Unique. Yeah, are <laughs> we unique in our destruction?
2: I, you know, there there's sometimes an analogy drawn to. The very earliest photosynthesizers, you know, two billion years or so ago, who over, you know, a long, 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 long period of time changed our atmosphere. So our atmosphere didn't have any oxygen in it. Uh, And as photosynthesis emerged, evolved, and these creatures photosynthesized away, we got an an atmosphere that's filled with oxygen. And for creatures that don't like oxygen, uh, that was a disaster. And it's sometimes called the oxygen holocaust. And that is potentially the only analog in the history uh, of life on this planet but but even so it's a pretty it's a pretty weak analog so i, th- I think that the that the very basic answer is, is no you know no creature has ever ever done this and and, and one other thing I'll, I'll just say is you you asked a question i didn't fully answer it before which is you know how we already seen the impact uh, of, of of creatures going extinct and so in the case of the of the megafauna you know there there are all sorts of impacts there are all sorts of you know plants that relied on the megafauna for example to spread their seeds around that are sort of these orphan uh, plants that that don't really do very well anymore or in some cases maybe even they're gone at this point so these these effects are, are ones that we don't necessarily notice because, you know, we're not very good at noticing these things. We, we, we move things around the world, you know, all the time, and most of our landscapes are made up of, of creatures and of, of plants that we moved here, that people moved here. So, you know, we're not really very, very good at sussing out the impacts of these extinctions on other creatures, but undoubtedly uh, there have been many, many impacts already.
3: I would follow up on that by... Uh, bring up an important concept that uh, ecologists, environmental historians, uh, bring up a lot, which is the shifting baseline syndrome. Uh, The the fact that unless our loss of biodiversity or the disappearance of a species is taking place very rapidly uh, within one human generation, we tend not to notice it because we mentally shift our expectations about the environment uh, or about species abundance. So this is particularly well known, for instance, in uh, patterns of overfishing, uh, that we really have... Uh, biologically impoverished oceans, especially when it comes to the species that we once most enjoyed catching and eating. Uh, But we didn't always see how much we were losing and how quickly because each generation of fishermen uh, quickly adjusted their expectation and each generation of consumers adjusted their expectation to the uh, smaller catches, uh, to eating what used to be considered trash fish because they were all that became available as we essentially ate our way down the, the, the trophic level from the big carnivores being like to you know, smaller uh, species of fish that once would have been considered not even worth the time.
0: So one of the things is that it's really hard to tell exactly how much diversity we've lost to this point. But is there any way that we have a sense of how far the sixth extinction has gone? And in general, what are the anticipated consequences for life on Earth, and especially for humans, since that seems to be what most people really care about, um, if it goes unchecked?
2: I mean, the way way that we look at sort of how far it's gone is is complicated because we don't we don't have the record of the present uh, we only have the present and we don't even know how much how many species there are on earth right now right e- even to within an order of magnitude some people would say but it, so there's a lot of species that you know we just haven't cataloged yet uh, probably the vast majority of species on earth which are not you know Charismatic animals—they're not panda bears, they're not porpoises, they're you know mollusks and insects, and they're pretty poorly uh, studied. So what we do, or what scientists do, is they look at the groups that we have studied. So take you know mammals or birds or groups that we pretty rarely encounter new species. Occasionally we do, but pretty rarely. So we think we have a pretty good handle on how many mammals there are on Earth right now. And then we look at yeah. how fast they're going extinct, and we find they're going extinct really, really fast. Uh, and when you look through all those you know, pretty well-known and well-catalogued groups, you find very high extinction rates, extinction rates that are so high that if they continued just for another few hundred years, say 500 years or so, which in geological time is nothing, uh, you would get to two mass extinction rate fatality rates. And in terms of what the, the impacts of this are going to be, they're, you know, they're, they're unspeakable, I suppose, on one level. Um, they're certainly, from the perspective of all of other life on Earth, they're you know, apocalyptic. Um, from our perspective, what does this mean to humans? That's a, that's a pretty difficult question to answer because we have proved over and over again that we can uh, survive the extinction of lots of creatures because, once again, we've, we've done that. But the question of whether there's a certain point where ecosystems just unravel, ecosystems that we depend on and are all parts still of big biological systems that we don't exactly even understand, uh, whether that just leads to some kind of ecological collapse that has very dire consequences for us, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to risk that personally, but that is exactly what we're doing right now.
3: I would add that perhaps even the rate of extinctions uh, that we're experiencing might not capture the full magnitude of what we're doing. Uh, Probably the most profound kind of impact we're having is the way in which we are replacing so much wild animal biomass uh, with domesticated and human biomass. So in other words, it may be that we manage to preserve enough savanna to keep a small fraction, a few percent uh, of the original population of lions alive, or we managed to hold on to uh, a few breeding families of condors. But we've already replaced the vast majority of their numbers uh, with ourselves uh, in our habitats, uh, you know, including our cities and farms, uh, and our domesticated animals, including you know, grasslands set aside for cattle, for instance. So we may be reducing many species uh, beyond the point at which they could provide the same ecosystem services or serve the same function within a healthy ecosystem as they did before.
2: I, I think Sam makes a really good point, and, and another another sort of corollary to that that I would just like to add is, um, you know, and I wrote a, you know, a book called The Six Extinction, so I am perhaps, you know, part of the problem here. But also when we, when we look at extinction rates, we're, we're not really just looking at Population crashes. So, for an, for an animal to be considered extinct, it has to be you know no one has seen one for 50 years. That's sort of the you know technical definition, as it were, or the definition in scientific circles. But when we go out and we just look at what has happened to you know populations of animals, so there's still some around, they're not not classified as extinct yet. We see you know just terrible loss. So you know as sort of Sam was alluding to, we, we're just replacing a lot of the biomass. So extinction rates, you know, I I completely agree. They don't entirely capture what's going on here because we really need to look at at populations. And and when we do that, and there was just a big study on that recently, you know, those are in some ways even more dire, those figures.
1: So to be a bit cavalier here, though, life on Earth has survived past extinctions. Why should we worry about a sixth extinction?
3: It's really a question of time scales. Uh, You know, species... Uh, Global biodiversity does rebound after mass extinctions, uh, but that took millions of years, uh, and we we just don't have millions of years.
2: Yeah, and I I mean, I think I think you know when you say why should we worry, that that's that's a very interesting question because right as, as Sam's suggesting, we won't be around at that point. Biodiversity might may rebound. But the other point is, if we're one of the species that is gone, you know, as you alluded to, we seem to be particularly concerned about our own future. Um, well, you know, that's that sort of curtains for us, too.
1: Who is more likely to adapt to the changing circumstances, us or plant and animal species?
2: You know, I mean, if, if we could all just adapt to whatever humans, you know, threw at us, then we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in right now. Now, you know, there are all sorts of questions of, as to what what kinds of species are you know particularly um, sort of extinction vulnerable, and you know they they tend to have all the characteristics that you would that you would think they they have very small ranges, they're endemic to you know one particular place. But you know some creatures will make it through. Um, in, in History is our guide. They will be species that were very widespread to begin with. So maybe you know humans are very widespread, so so maybe we'll be one of them. But the, the defining characteristics of a mass extinction are that lots and lots and lots of species go extinct in all different groups. So you know, from the very tips of the tree of life to you know to to the to the root.
1: So, despite having a best-selling book titled The Sixth Extinction, do you think most Americans or people around the world are even aware of the threat of a sixth extinction?
2: Well, I think that people are aware, you know, to the extent that people are aware of anything these days, um, they're aware that, that there's a lot of species, sort of iconic species, that are, are threatened. You know, take your kids to the zoo, and you're just bombarded. I, I used to find taking my kids to the zoo, you know, really one of the most depressing things you could do, because here were all these fantastic Creatures, you know, there was often literature associated with them or the label on the the aquarium or whatever about how terribly endangered these creatures were. And zoos are repositories for a lot of biodiversity that increasingly doesn't exist anywhere else, and they're often very involved in conservation, I should add. So I think it's hard to avoid, you know, these days, the sense that there's a lot of loss out there, but... Do people put it all together in the big picture and say, wow, something big and huge and really unusual is going on? I don't think so. I think all of us you know, who are alive today grew up in a time of biodiversity loss, so we're sort of used to it and It's like, oh, something's gone extinct. That doesn't strike us as that weird, but really it should be basically impossible for you in the course of your lifetime to see a species go extinct. That just should not happen.
3: Yes, I'd I'd largely agree with that. I I think what captures public attention is the threat to charismatic megafauna, threat to polar bears, threat to elephants or lions. And those animals are are often so few in number that actually at the time that they do go extinct, they no longer played a major role in ecosystems, that they were not particularly abundant in the wild. And so people see their loss as something sort of sentimental or aesthetic. What, what's troublesome is that people don't see the much greater biodiversity loss uh, that, that's going on all around us day by day in species that they had never heard of uh, and that may play significant roles in the ecosystems that may provide vital ecosystem services or be the linchpin of an ecosystem. I think another point which often rather surprises my students as I teach environmental history is the extent to which we have replaced most mammalian and, and uh, avian biomass uh, in the world. Uh, What tends to really shock my students much more so than giving numbers of extinctions or pointing out major past extinctions, such as the passenger pigeon, is just simply showing them uh, estimates uh, that, for instance, we have now replaced more than 90 percent of the world's mammalian biomass with humans and their domesticated animals. The the figure is just so overwhelming. This is really an an ongoing struggle uh, that we need to keep finding different ways to address different problems.
0: So... Is there anything that people can do at this point to halt or slow mass extinction and mitigate its effects in the future? Um, Are there practical actions that people can take on individual level to help address this problem?
3: So it's a difficult question because I'll start by saying probably the most important thing you can do is is vote uh, because this will largely be a policy issue. But um, in thinking about just what you can do on a personal level, I guess there are really two kinds of actions that you can take. Uh, One would be actions focused specifically on avoiding current threats to endangered species, the kinds of actions, avoiding the kinds of actions that directly uh, affect endangered species. So, for instance, uh, trying to avoid fish that are not certified by the Marine Stewardship Council, or, uh, for that matter, trying to avoid meat consumption altogether since it tends to have uh, a larger environmental footprint. And of course, avoiding any kinds of purchases that would directly contribute to poaching of endangered species. For instance, don't don't purchase ivory, don't purchase um, uh, any animal parts, uh, many of which are already uh, illegal, of course, under the, an international treaty, under the CITES Treaty. But that really is only a part of it, because as we talked before, there are so many drivers of the global mass extinction event that may be occurring. Uh, and really to to minimize your role in that, um, you would have to minimize your environmental impact in so many ways. Uh, you would want to, for instance, minimize your carbon footprint uh, by minimizing your energy use, especially any energy use that comes from burning fossil fuels uh, you'd want to physically take up less space if you could uh, by living you know in a city rather than uh, on on more land you you would want to minimize any kinds of, you know, purchases of goods that may in the process of production or distribution involve taking up more energy or producing more greenhouse gas. So I think what it really gets to is, is, as with so many other environmental issues, that they are all tied together because our environmental impact, the accelerating rate of environmental change is largely driven by all our economic activity, all our economic activity as consumers and producers. That makes it very hard for an individual Uh, to maintain the current standard of living and and still have a reasonable environmental footprint.
0: So then turning to the bigger picture about how we act on national and on on a global scale, are there current U.S. environmental policies that address the sixth extinction in any meaningful way? And is it possible to address the sixth extinction on sort of a country-by-country basis, or do we need a global consensus on how to to manage this problem?
2: Well, I... There, there's you know there's a lot of different ways to answer that question the The first and most immediate one that comes to mind is that us environmental policy right now in 2017 um, is you know is just a disaster um, uh, the Trump administration is undoing whatever progress was made in terms of curbing carbon emissions and trying to limit climate change there are huge Policy changes, you know, that are tipping in favor of exploitation of our of our public lands, which are the only real big tracks left we have of of habitat for a lot of species. So, you know, we're actually actively um, moving in in the wrong direction right right now as we speak. Now, if we took a bigger picture and we sort of abstracted ourselves from the politics of the moment, one one of the big things that that we could do, but that would require international cooperation. Would be to put aside uh, big tracts of land that are still intact, and some of them in North America, a lot of them are in the tropics. Uh, and we would have to, as a as a society, as a as a world, decide those are places that we want to leave intact because the climate is changing. We're not stopping that. We can limit it, but we're not stopping it right now. I think that you know one of the Best, best we would make as as a planet is to is to put aside land where as many species as possible could get through this very very difficult time that we've imposed on them and a lot of these rainforests and areas that are very very biodiverse are in developing parts of the world they would presumably need to be compensated let's say for putting that land aside so as a as a globe we would have to kind of you know step up to the plate now is there any sign that that's happening the short answer is no but could it happen? Yes, it is possible. It is in the
3: realm of the possible. How's that? Um, from a historical perspective, what, what's peculiar is that on the one hand, America has been often a leader in policies designed to uh, protect endangered species, whether this goes all the way back to, say, uh, early hunting laws or later the national parks and movement and, and uh, national forests movement of the late 19th century, or the National Wilderness Act the 1960s Endangered Species Act America has often been at the lead in those kinds of environmental initiatives and and continues to take part in some uh, international initiatives such as the uh, Convention on international Trade and in endangered species yet on the other hand America has often been uh, a laggard in the kind of environmental policies that uh, more indirectly affect on species or impact on biodiversity uh, you know we've traditionally had a very uh, energy intensive and land extensive style of growth uh, we Are not necessarily as concerned about our impacts on uh, landscapes or biodiversity overseas and our consumption here in America. And of course, now we are um, an international laggard on policies to address climate change. And uh, I would also be cautiously optimistic that while we can't completely stop uh, the biodiversity loss we've had, um, we could potentially uh, slow this biodiversity loss considerably through uh, active international policies. And there have been some Uh, promising steps uh, amid what otherwise might seem a gloomy situation, such as, for instance, countries, including America, that have set aside larger marine reserves uh, designed to protect uh, marine biodiversity.
0: Well, we'll wrap it up on that note. Thank you to our two guests, Elizabeth Colbert, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Sixth Extinction, and OSU Department of History environmental historian Sam White.
1: Thanks, everyone. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center and the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breivogel. Our executive producer is David Stately. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Berna Miller and Jessica Venus Nelson. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more on our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes, and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.